Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning, if you would please, back to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, we have been out of the book of 1 Peter about as long as we were in it. In fact, the last time we were in it was Palm Sunday. When we looked at Christ's suffering for us, we looked in particular at chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, we were breezing right along, and from Easter on, I've been dealing with some other themes, but I would like to get back to the book and finish out chapter 4 and chapter 5. And this morning, we're going to look at a plea for fervent Christian living. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Beginning there in verse 1, Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Father, open our understanding today and teach us your word. That we might be stronger. That we might grow in our faith. And that we might be more equipped to face whatever we might face from the hands of this present culture. Lord, we know that in the culture there is darkness that seems to reign. But we know that you are providential and you have a plan and a purpose in all things. God, help us to shine as lights in this dark world. And help us be fervent and passionate about Christ and the Christian life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we've been out of 1 Peter for about as long as we were in it. And I think for that reason, it might be good if we take just a moment and go back over some of the introductory points that I gave you in that very first message and I've given those to you on your sermon notes page. We've seen in the book of 1 Peter how Christians are to live differently than the world. We are to be a people who are filled with different hopes than the average man on the street. We are to have a different way of thinking. The Bible says that we are to be renewed in our thinking and, and we are to be transformed in our thinking. We are to have different desires. We are to serve differently. We are to be model citizens even when we don't agree with all of our leaders. We're to have better marriages as Christians. We're to have marriages that are filled with dignity and love and respect. We're to be different employers. 
different kinds of employees. And we're to be stewards of all that God has put into our hands and blessed us with. And so the book of 1 Peter really challenges us and addresses us with where we live today in our everyday lives. One commentator on the book of 1 Peter uh, uh, said that the book is the most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith and of the conduct that it inspires. The great reformer Martin Luther considered 1 Peter on par with the book of Romans and the gospel of John. He believed that it contains all that is necessary for the Christian to know. The letter has a universal relevance seen in how it points out that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundational principle by which the Christian life is lived out within the context of a larger unbelieving society. I shared with you a very interesting point I found about 1 Peter. In areas of the world where Christians are going through heavy persecution, it is said that 1 Peter is the most popular book in the Bible that they turn to for encouragement and hope. A very specific example of that is the Christians in the nation of Indonesia. Indonesia is the most heavily populated Muslim countries and it's very difficult to be a Christian there. But the book of 1 Peter provides them with a great deal of instruction and hope. Karen Jobes in her commentary on 1 Peter cites other examples of both past and present time where persecuted Christians have turned uh, to the book of 1 Peter. She says, Peter writes to those whom he addresses as foreigners and resident aliens within the society in which they lived. He holds up Jesus Christ as the true outsider, coming into this world but being rejected by it and finally even executed by it. She quotes another writer saying the root of Christian self-understanding as aliens and sojourners lies not so much in the story of Abraham and Sarah and the nation of Israel as it does in the destiny of Jesus Christ, his mission and his rejection which ultimately brought him to the cross. First Peter is about you and me living as strangers and immigrants or aliens in a foreign land. Folks, we need to understand that this world is not our home. We are strangers here. We are aliens. We are pilgrims. We're to be like Abraham. The Bible in the book of uh, Hebrews says that Abraham was just passing through this world. He lived as a stranger in this world because he was looking for a better land. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Now continuing to quote Karen Job, she says, Therefore Peter exhorts Christians to engage the world as foreigners and resident aliens having a healthy respect for the society and culture in which they live while at the same time maintaining an appropriate separation from it. It is as foreigners and resident aliens that Peter's readers are to abstain from carnal desires that even though they may be socially acceptable, wage war against the soul. 
She continues, 1 Peter raises a second related issue by presenting the challenging principle that it is better to suffer than to sin. Christians are to understand themselves as a people who are done with sin, which means that one must be prepared to suffer the consequences of not sinning. The thought that suffering is a normal part of the Christian life and within God's will may be a startling thought, she says, especially for those who became Christians with the idea that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. 1 Peter challenges Christians to re-examine our acceptance of society's norm and to be willing to suffer the alienation of being a visiting foreigner in our own culture wherever its values conflict with those of Christ. Now folks, we are in a section of the book now that is the very heart and core of the entire epistle. Now when we last looked at 1 Peter, we were looking at the suffering of Christ. Peter said in chapter 3 verse 18 that the just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And we saw there that Christ's suffering had a purpose, a very specific purpose. His suffering was so that you and I might be redeemed and reconciled to a holy God. Christ paid the penalty for your sin and my sin. And that's the purpose of why he suffered and died. But his suffering was not the last chapter. His death was not the last chapter because they put his dead body in a tomb and what happened three days later? God raised him from the dead. He ascended to the Father and he's at the right hand of the Father and one of these days he's coming back to get his bride. And so suffering was not the last chapter. Now, as we get into chapter 4, we'll see that we're also being called upon to suffer for our faith. And we are assured that our suffering likewise will have a larger purpose to it. And we will see that suffering in the Christian's life will not have the final say. Because the Bible says if we have died with Christ, we will also be what? We will also be raised with Christ. In this section, we'll see that as a Christian, you may have to suffer unjustly for your faith. But know that God is able to reward you and to ultimately even deal with those who trouble you. And so don't lose heart. And don't relax or weaken your Christian convictions. Listen to him again here the way he begins. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. No longer for human passions, but... For the will of God. Now as we hear those words. I want you to think with me for a moment. About the negative example. 
of the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Remember what they said of themselves? They said, we are rich and we don't need anything. We've got everything that we need. And Jesus looked at them and said, you do not realize that you are poor and blind and naked. And he said, I counsel you to buy from me what only I can give you. And he went on to say, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're neither, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. This morning, would you say that your life is hot or cold or lukewarm? You see, lukewarm Christians are only willing to go so far in their living for Christ, in their service. They're only willing to go so far in their suffering for the name of Christ or their suffering for the sake of the gospel. They draw limits, they draw lines, and they say, God, I'll go this far, but no further. But Peter is counseling us to have the opposite attitude, that there will be no limits in our life to how we serve the Lord Jesus. Now let's see how he develops that here. First of all, he tells us that we are to prepare ourselves for a degree of suffering. We are to prepare ourselves for a degree of suffering. Notice how he begins. He says, since therefore, which harkens back to what he's just said in chapter 3 about Jesus Christ and the suffering of Christ. He tells us that since Christ has suffered, we likewise are to arm ourselves to suffer. Now let me say that there is continuity and discontinuity between our suffering and Christ's suffering. And I'll explain what I mean by that. There is discontinuity in the sense that our suffering will not be just like Christ's suffering because Christ's suffering was very unique because of the role that he fulfills. He is the, he is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. Deity and humanity perfectly reside in Jesus Christ. Theologians refer to it as the hypostatic union. Fully God, fully man. Two natures in one essence. Christ had to be that way to die on the cross for your sin and my sin. He had to be a perfect representative of mankind without any sin. And it had to be an offering from God at the same time. He had to be the God-man. And in that role as the God-man, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and my sin. It's called the substitutionary atonement. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ died in your stead. And in my stead. Only Christ could have done what transpired there at Calvary's cross. 
And so what I'm saying is his suffering in that regard was very unique. You and I could die for one another, but it would only be a nice gesture. It would be simply one man dying for another man. One man laying down uh, his life for another man in a show of compassion or a show of love. But it would have no salvific effect to it whatsoever. I could not die for your sin. You could not die for my sin because we're not fully God and fully man. But Jesus was and is. And so his suffering was unique in that regard. But there's continuity or likeness in his suffering in the same regard as what he told his disciples about in John 15. In John 15, Jesus was preparing his disciples for when he departed from them and went back from the Father. And remember what he told them? He said the world is going to hate you and persecute you the same way that it did me simply because you identify with me. He said the servant is not greater than the master. And so as the world despised him, it's going to despise us because we belong to him. In that sense, Christ suffered also, and you and I, as his followers, will suffer as well. You and I will suffer in some circles with certain unbelievers simply because we identify with Jesus Christ. We don't need to kid ourselves that it'll never be like that, because it will. In fact, if we never suffer as a Christian, the reason in all likelihood is that we're failing to truly live for Christ. We're blending in too much with the world, which should be an indictment on our oftentimes anemic Christianity. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, Timothy, all of those, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution at some point in your life and at some point in my life if we stand strong for the gospel and we continue to stand strong for Christ somebody along the way is going to oppose us and there's some degree of opposition and persecution that we will encounter Peter is admonishing us to recognize that and be ready for it. And folks, I want to tell you something. When you suffer for your faith, there's nothing wrong with you. Sometimes people in the church will come to me and say, Pastor, I'm being opposed at work for my Christian faith, or this is happening, or that's happening, or I'm going through this trial or that trial because of my Christianity. Is there something wrong with me? No. There's nothing wrong with you. You're experiencing simply what the saints of old have always experienced. And what saints today around the world in difficult cultures, you're experiencing what they're experiencing. There's nothing wrong with you. Don't let somebody tell you, well, you're just going through a tough time because you don't have enough faith. If you had more faith, you wouldn't be going through that tough time. 
There's a word for that. Baloney. <laughs> Look at the example of Job. God said of Job that he was a righteous man. That was God's verdict of Job's life. That wasn't man's verdict of Job's life. That was God's verdict of Job's life. That he was a righteous man. And yet Job suffered. If you're opposed for your faith, hang in there and be strong. There's nothing wrong with you. In fact, perhaps if more of us were more courageous in our faith, we might be going through more of that ourselves. Peter says we are to arm ourselves for that. Look at the, look at the word that he uses here. Arm yourselves. Uh, in the Greek language, it, it was a military term. That you are to arm yourself like, like a soldier with his equipment, getting all of his equipment lined up and ready and putting on all of his equipment and, and getting himself uh, poised for battle. He says the Christian is to arm himself for this because we're engaged in a spiritual warfare. And so we need to get ready for suffering. Now what he says next has really puzzled some people, but it shouldn't when we understand his point. When he says here that he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, he's not saying that you and I reach sinless perfection by suffering. I understand how the verse could be read that way, but that's not what the verse is teaching. I wish I had time this morning to go into some of the discussions and more of the technical commentaries on this. If you're interested in that, I can help you out. I can point you in the right direction to do some reading and studying yourself on that. But suffice it to say that what Peter is wanting us to understand is that he who is prepared and willing to suffer for Christ is somebody whom the allurements of the world and the flesh have no power. What Peter is saying is if, if you've gotten to that point in your Christian faith that you're prepared to live for the Lord or die for the Lord, that you really don't care what the world thinks anymore, you've reached a certain maturity in your Christian walk that the pull of sin, the attraction of sin is not so great anymore. The perfect example here of what Peter is teaching would be the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the Philippians. He was under house arrest. He was chained to Roman soldiers day and night. The Philippians were worried about him. Paul wrote to them to say, don't worry about me. What has, fall, what has happened to me has fallen out for the good of the gospel. I wanted to bring the gospel to Rome and I, I've been able through my imprisonments to, to bring the gospel to Rome. And I'm chained to Roman soldiers. Don't worry about me. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Folks, you can't defeat a man like that. 
Paul said, I'm ready to live for Christ. If I live for Christ, you know what I'm going to do? If I live for Christ and I'm set free from this imprisonment, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to continue doing my missionary journeys. I'm going to continue doing the work of an apostle and spreading the gospel. I'm going to live for Christ. But if I die absent from the body, present with the Lord, I win. I win either way. And what Peter is saying is when you and I have grown in Christ and reached that level of maturity that we can say that same thing with the Apostle Paul. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. All of the attractions of sin and, and all the attractions of the world have fallen by the wayside. He's not saying that you'll be sinlessly perfect, sinless perfection. But he's just saying that's not even the attraction to you anymore. If you've gotten to that point in your Christian life that you're genuinely willing to say, you know, if Christ wants me to sell everything that I have and move my family to the mission field, and maybe two or three years into my service on that mission field, I end up losing my very life for the sake of the gospel. I really don't care anymore. By ceased from sin, he means you've ceased from the pull or the attractiveness of sin. Some of you perhaps have, have gone through being made fun of. Because you're a Christian. Maybe you've been attacked. Maybe you've even lost a job in the past because they knew you were a Christian. You've come out the other end of that strong enough to say, What can man do to me? Man can't hurt me. Remember what Romans 8.31 says, If God be for us, who can be against us? You've reached a point that the world doesn't have that attraction or that hold on you anymore. That's the type of Christian that Peter is admonishing every single one of us to be. You say, wait a minute, Pastor. That, that's, that must be a special class of Christianity, though, for just a few. No. Because Jesus said, if any man wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, he must pick up his cross, and he must follow me. What was a cross? A cross was an instrument of death. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. Wasn't Jesus saying the same thing? Folks, that's not some kind of elite Christianity. That is supposed to be normal Christianity. Perhaps there are some here today, though, that need to take the words of Joshua very seriously. When Joshua looked at the people and he said, Choose you this day whom you're going to follow. You need to make up your mind who you're going to follow. Are you going to follow Christ or are you going to follow the world? Are you willing to come to Christ with open hands and an open heart and saying, Lord, whatever it is that you have for me to do, I'm willing to do it, whatever the price. There's freedom in that. 
Make up your mind, Peter is saying. You know, when we think about different cultures in the world and what they go through, honestly, folks, we don't have to suffer much. Let's be honest. We don't. That may change, but we don't. I think the most suffering I had, or the most opposition and persecution I ever had to face in my Christian walk, it's when God saved me as a 19-year-old boy and called me to preach. My best friend was a pagan and he was proud of it. And when I shared with him what Christ had done in my life, he wanted nothing to do with me anymore. So I lost a best friend. But God gave me a hundred more in place. And my dad, when I went home and shared with my parents what God had done in my life and how God had called me to preach. My dad hit the ceiling. No boy of mine's going to be in the ministry. You are not going to do that. And you go to school to be a preacher. I'm not going to pay for your school. I'm not going to pay for your college. And he held true to his word. So I had to go get loans and all and pay for my own schooling. He went to my home preacher. You better talk him out of that. The preacher said, sir, you better leave him alone because if God's not called him, it's not going to last anyway. It'll play out and burn out on its own. Don't worry about it. But if God's called him and you try to prevent him, you're going to be fighting against God. Same advice Gamaliel gave to the authorities in the book of Acts. So my opposition was friends and family. Now, a couple years later, my dad came around because God started working in his life. But most of us haven't had to suffer that much in our context. But again, I can see how some of that in the culture might eventually be changing. And so what Peter is saying here is you need to get ready for that. Buckle up and get ready, so to speak. What if things in the culture change to the point that we have to suffer? Are you ready for that? Recently, I, I bothered people a little bit. I didn't mean to. I bothered people a little bit on Wednesday night in a doctrinal study. I changed my viewpoint on something. Now, it's a secondary doctrine that I changed my viewpoint on. And it's a doctrine where there is great disagreement among the evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing community. It's not something we ought to divide over. 20, 25 years now, I've held to the position that the church is going to be raptured out before the tribulation, a pre-trib rapture. I've changed my convictions on that recently. I'm sorry, but I have. Through some of the more in-depth study I've done over the past year or two. I think we're going to go through the tribulation. I still believe in a rapture, 
But we're going to be raptured up to meet the Lord in the air, and we're going to be the ones to turn around and come back with Jesus. By the way, that's the way the word is consistently used in the Bible. When the important person, the dignitary, was coming into the city and they, the crowd would go out to meet him, they would be the ones to turn around and go back into the city with him. When the dignitary from heaven comes, the Lord Jesus for his bride, we're going to be caught up together uh, with, with other loved ones in the Lord to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to be changed, but we're going to be the ones to turn around and come back with him. But we're going to have already gone through the tribulation. A, a post-trib perspective. I've always been pre-trib. I'm, I, I don't believe, I don't think we're going to be rescued out in that way. I think we're going to be protected in the midst of person. Just like God looked after Israel in Egypt, God will look after us. Now, there may be some in tribulation who die for their faith. But why is that so strange? People are dying for their faith all over the world. Who are we to think somehow or another we're supposed to escape all of that? You know what? I hope, I hope that I used to be right and I'm wrong now. I hope, I hope we are raptured out before the tribulation. And if you believe that, I'm not trying to change your mind. If you believe in the pre-trib rapture, fantastic. I hope you're right. But what if I'm right? Are you ready for a degree of suffering that might come on the world? Peter is saying you need to arm yourself for it. You need to get ready. And that really begins by making up your mind. Is there going to be the open hands and open heart, no strings attached kind of commitment to the Lord? Whatever you want, God, I'm ready. Live or die, I'm ready. Secondly, and we'll probably only get through this. We may not get all four points done, okay? Sinful desires belong to your past when you were lost in darkness. Again, he's not talking about sinless perfection now. But those desires, those habitual desires for sin belong to your past. Look at what he says here in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. One writer says that, it, that it's almost uh, a sarcastic way that Peter says... You've had, you've had, had, you have had enough time in your pre-conversion life to pursue a life of sin. And by the way, you probably did a pretty good job of it at the time. I'm not sure Peter's being sarcastic, but I see the point that that writer's making. Conversion should mark a change in your life and my life. The Bible says if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are gone. Behold, everything has become new. 
Somebody who says they're a believer, there ought to be evidence of it in your life. That those past patterns of sinful desires, you've laid that aside now. You've repented of that and you've come to Christ and you're living for Christ now. He, Paul says much the same thing here. I want you to turn with me back to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, because I love the way Paul describes it here, of, of putting off and putting on. It's like taking off old dirty clothes and putting on new clothes. In Colossians 3, he says, If then, beginning there in verse 1, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Hence, or here rather, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Isn't he saying essentially the same thing Peter was saying? Of course, Paul, again, Paul is adding the new, the new clothes we put on. But both of them are saying, take off the old clothes if you're a believer now. Dr. Kenneth Keithley, who teaches theology at Southeastern Seminary, in, in the section, of, the, the section of, on salvation... In the book, A Theology for the Church. That's, that's one of the books I've told you you need to buy. A Theology for the Church, edited by Dr. Danny Aiken. In the section on salvation, Keithley says, The Bible gives at least four characteristics that distinguish a saved person, a regenerated person. Now, I mention these because among them... He points out exactly what Peter is talking about here in verse 3. But first of all, Keithley says, the new birth imparts a new comprehension of spiritual truth. Paul stated, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 
The bondage of sin, he says, has the effect of blinding the unsaved person to matters of eternal worth and therefore their foolishness to him. The unregenerate person can be aware of what the Bible teaches, but he's unable to see the truth and to fully understand it. Secondly, Keithley says, regeneration provides a new affection for God and the things of God. The reason we have a new comprehension for the truth is that we have a new love for the truth. When we're born again, we're given a new disposition. The Bible specifically states that those who are born of God will love God, they will love the Word of God, and they will love the people of God. I think if I did not love the church, the body of Christ, I would have some real concerns about my salvation. Likewise, I think if I did not love the Bible, I would be a bit concerned if I was professing to know Christ with my lips, but did not genuinely love His Word. Something's wrong there. A disconnect. A believer will even love the preaching of the Word of God. Now, I know there's bad preaching. You don't get any of that around here, though, do you? But a believer will love the preaching of the Word of God because it is one of the means of grace in a believer's life for growth. And so you hunger for it. But I think if I didn't love the Word and love the teaching and preaching of the Word, I would be a bit concerned about the genuineness of my salvation. He says a regenerate person also exhibits a distinct attitude toward the world and the world's inhabitants. He does not love the world and its opposition to God, but at the same time, he loves his enemies and desires to see the salvation of the lost. We could talk here about prayer and kingdom service. Do you pray? Do you talk to your heavenly father? Do you serve? A mark of authentic Christianity is that God himself has built all of those new desires into your life when he saved you. Now, of course, those new desires are not full grown yet. They're not full grown at the moment of our new birth. We've got to continue to grow. But those new desires have been put into us by the Spirit of the living God. He says the third effect of regeneration is a new power over temptation and sin. An unsaved person is controlled by his sinful nature so that he inevitably produces the fruit of sin. But for the regenerate, sin is not eradicated, but it is dethroned. The sinful nature is not gone, but its power is broken. In other words, sin no longer dominates the life. And then fourthly, he says, the new birth instigates a new relationship with God. The scriptures declare that the redeemed are born of God and are the children of God. We love God and love his children. Again, I know Peter is only mentioning things we put off, we take off. But other places in the New Testament talk about the new things that we're to put on. 
The point Peter is making here, folks, are that there are actions and attitudes that reflect genuine Christian faith and there are actions and attitudes that reflect that faith is not genuine. Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. By their fruits you will know them. Because he said, there are many that will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord. But I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. A changed life. Where now you want to lay the unrighteous things aside and be clothed with Christ. And live for Christ and the purposes of Christ. Is that a hallmark of your life? If it is, that is a great encouragement to you and assurance of new birth. But if those new desires are not in you, that ought to cause you to do some soul searching. Thirdly, I'm just going to mention three and four. Godly living will incur the wrath of the world. The wrath of the world. Because your life brings conviction to the unbeliever's life. You don't rub their noses in it. Don't, don't approach the unbeliever with the attitude you're holier than them. That's not going to win anybody. But just your life as you live out the gospel. Your life is going to bring conviction to the unbeliever. And they're going to oppose you. Peter says here that they are going to malign you and they're even going to blaspheme you as the New Revised Standard Version puts it. Writers talk about how the Greeks and the Romans blamed Christians because they said, we've got to, if we want to have prosperity in the, in the world and in our empire, uh, we've got to have everybody serving all these Greek and Roman gods that look after us. And the Roman emperor who looks after us. And these Christians, they were saying of the Christians, they can have their Jesus, but we want them to still worship all of our gods at the same time. Because if they don't worship all of our gods at the same time, our gods might turn on us. And so when the Roman Empire started declining, who got the blame for it? Christians did. Because they would no longer worship the Roman God. It was the exclusivity exclusivity of faith in Jesus Christ that offended the Romans and the Greeks. Folks, have we not come full circle on that today? Listen to what's going on in our culture today. People are saying if Christians want to believe that what they say they believe, that's fine, let them keep it in their churches or whatever. But think of all the, the new social norms that people are wanting us to embrace. And they're saying if Christians hold to the exclusivity uh, of their Christian faith, they're opposed to us. We incur their wrath. If we go along with everything and embrace our Jesus at the same time, we compromise, they're okay with that. We've got to stand firm for Christ, though, even if the world turns against us. Folks, we can't embrace everything the culture is saying and remain true to the gospel. We can't. Who are we more concerned with? Society's wrath or God's wrath? 
And then lastly, and I'll wrap up, the preaching of the gospel is powerful to bring change. That's what he's talking about in verse 6. It's such a wonderful verse. The preaching of the good news is what gets somebody ready to be able to stand approved before God one day. Romans 8.1 is a great commentary verse on this. It says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're wondering what in the world to do with that part of the verse that says the gospel was preached to the dead. Let me tell you what it's not saying. He is not saying that people get a second chance after they die. The Bible does not teach you get a second chance after you die. The NIV gets it correctly. The NIV translators put a word in there that helps us to understand what the verse is saying. The NIV translator said, For this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. It plugs in the word now. Peter is saying... The preaching of the gospel to our contemporaries who have died and gone on to meet them because we preached the gospel to them and they embraced Christ. They were ready to meet the one who judges the living and the dead. They're with him now because when the gospel was preached to them, they embraced it. What Peter is saying, it is the gospel that prepares you and me to meet God. The gospel brings change to one's life. The gospel prepares you to meet God. Thank God for the gospel. If you have come to saving faith in Jesus, it is time we get serious and fervent about our Christian life. It is time that we prepare ourselves to suffer if we have to end up going that route. It is time to lay habitual sin aside. It is time to be clothed with those things that are pleasing to God. It is time to be more passionate and intentional about sharing the gospel so that others can know can come to know Christ and be set free. If you've been lukewarm, I am grateful that God allows U-turns. In fact, He commands it. It's called repentance. Is there any lukewarmness that you need to repent of today? Are you ready to suffer? Are you ready to deal with sin in your life? Are you ready to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ? Are you ready to stand firm for the gospel in a lost world? Regardless of what it costs the individual Christian or the church today, are you ready? Fervent, passionate Christian living. Folks, we are not going to reach a lost world for Christ with the anemic, lukewarm Christianity that we're seeing all across America today. 
It is time for a change in my life, a time for a change in your life, a time for a change in our lives and in the churches across America. There's a world that is dying and going to hell. And each one of us are going to stand before holy God one day and we're going to have to give an account of our own lives. What are we doing with what we've been entrusted with?